Welcome, everyone, to episode 52 of Some Like It's Got, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Sheldon, and on the podcast today, we will be reviewing the third Disney live-action adaptation of the year, and the one that is probably more of a, a remaster than a remake, and that, of course, is The Lion King. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. It has been a solid week. Uh, last night, was very excited because uh, at the last, sort of at the last minute, I got a ticket to go see a live taping of uh, one of my favorite podcasts, How Did This Get Made? And it was wonderful. Uh, if you've never heard the podcast, it's a uh, comedy slash movie podcast uh, in which Paul Shear, Jason Manzukis, and June Diane Raphael watch and talk about some of the worst movies ever made. Uh, and so I had the pleasure of listening to them talk about the Catherine Heigl, Rosario Dawson uh, thriller, Unforgettable, which I uh, watched uh, the other day. And woof, that that uh, is a movie, I guess you could say. Uh, but certainly their takes were pretty hilarious and on point. So uh, that was uh, that was a fun experience to get to go to that last night. So what, what was the verdict? How, how did it get made? Well, see, that's the thing. They never really answered the question of how did it get made? Just more, why did it get made? I think is more of what they're uh, they're they're discussing, and I'm not sure that a clear answer was a uh, they ever came up with a clear answer for that. Although they did seem to enjoy the movie more than a lot of the movies that they uh, that they talk about on a campy level, at least. I was gonna say I saw your letterbox review. It didn't seem that you shared their enjoyment. Well, you know, it's it's a trashy movie, but it's one of those where they should have gone way over the top with it, but they lost a lot of points because they just played it straight the whole time, even though it's crazy what is going on. Wild. Well, Scott, thing, something that was, uh, I guess you could say they played it safe the whole time is the movie we're going to be talking about this week. And as I've already mentioned, it's our third Disney live action remake of the year. And so this movie almost needs no introduction. This version of The Lion King is directed by visionary slash crowd-pleasing director John Favreau, who's already proven his Disney live-action chops with the Jungle Book remake from 2016. And this time around, he sets out to make a photorealistic, fully CG Disney nature documentary come live-action retelling that quite literally is a retelling of the story of Simba, voiced both by J.D. McCrary and childish Gambino Donald Glover, who is the Lion Crown Prince of the Pride Lands, whose father, Mufasa, voiced by James Earl Jones, returning from the original animated movie, is murdered by his treacherous and jealous brother, Chiwetel Ejiofor's Scar. Scott, I'll stop there because, honestly, I feel like this. I've already introduced this movie too much because all our listeners already know all about it. But with this new version, with nearly 30 extra minutes of story, and with its $260 million budget, primarily, I would imagine, for its visual effects. Did it wow you? Did this version shed uh, this movie in a new light? Or did this remake wow you in a different, maybe less endearing way? Yeah, you know, Scott, when we talked about Aladdin, we talked about how maybe the the ultimate compliment, the best compliment you could pay to any of these live action remakes is that, you know, if you wanted to watch the movie in the future, 
sometimes you might watch actually want to watch the live action one and I might actually sit down and watch the live action one and I think we both sort of felt that way about Aladdin that you know if we wanted to watch Aladdin maybe sometimes we would watch the uh, original and sometime we would watch the remake and I, I really do think that that's one of the best compliments you can pay to one of these Disney live action remakes uh, because for the most part they aren't doing anything incredibly new of course we did see uh, a quite interesting take on the Dumbo story earlier this year um, and not in a good way but for the most part they're not trying to reinvent the wheel um, with these remakes and I think that is especially true with this movie which yeah I mean Look, there's no sense in hiding the ball or, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say that this is a shot by shot remake of the original. There are some additional things thrown in. I was really confused about the fact that this movie is almost 30 minutes longer than the original. And yet I could find very little that was added into the movie. See, that's so interesting because that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about later on. But I actually think that. I did notice it, and not in a way of like, oh, this feels so much longer. It flushes out so many of the scenes. Like the way that I almost would think or have thought about it and would describe it is that all of the major plot points of the original live action, or sorry, the original animated version remain completely intact, which is why the story doesn't feel different and it feels like maybe it's a shot for shot remake, but they flesh things out and change things in very subtle ways. And I don't, I mean, I don't mean that as a compliment or an insult when I say it in subtle ways, but I think they flesh out certain scenes. Maybe they add a touch here and there moments, and then all of a sudden you have 30 extra minutes of footage. And I think that primarily is just driven by the fact that they've fleshed out more scenes. They've elongated some scenes and added minor content, right, while keeping that those major plot points intact. And so, I mean, I'm, we'll get around to talking about maybe the additional footage, so to, so to speak, but I'll let you get back to your big thoughts there. I just wanted to jump in. That's probably true, but the fact that I just don't think that there's very much discernible that was added into the movie, you know, kind of does indicate to me that the 30 extra minutes is really just a lack of efficiency on this on a story from a storytelling perspective because they're telling the exact same story. And, you know, the original the animated original was able to tell that story in less than 90 minutes in a package that satisfied pretty much everybody. So I don't think we really needed the extra 30 minutes unless they were going to go, you know, out on a limb and try to do something a little bit different. Because, again, at the end of the day, I didn't feel that there there weren't moments that stuck out to me as, oh, there was something that they added in that really, uh, you know, accented the movie. Uh, but anyway, I think that, you know, obviously the original is a classic. It's a great film. Um, it's one of my favorite Disney animated movies. Not my favorite, but... Uh, it's it's high up there on the list. And so, you know, I, I guess that there is some pleasure, of course, that you take in watching that great story and those uh, characters and the songs and everything that were great about the original, uh, you know, again on the screen. But like, I can't say that any of the pleasures that I took in this movie were because of anything that this movie did, you know, other than evoke the original. So, you know, it, it's weird to review this movie because I feel like on the one on the one hand, you can say, well, yeah, they did a shot-by-shot -shot remake, but the original is great, so who cares? You know, on, on a macro level, I don't think that's the kind of filmmaking we should be rewarding because, obviously, it, there's no originality there whatsoever. Just, just, to jump in, just to jump in on that point, like, I, you know, I went into this thinking it was going to be that, and I think that, although I, I still think that it, it lacks the creativity that we should be pushing for filmmaking in Hollywood, I, it's un, I think it is unfair to call it a shot-for-shot -shot remake. I think that they spend a lot of time in the movie 
recreating those shots that yes, to, to your point exactly. And, and you meant it as a negative and I don't, I'm probably a little bit more positive, but also want to like call it out is that it's trying to evoke that the emotion and, and what you experienced watching animated version of it, right? Like it recreates those shots and then, but it does add 30 minutes of footage that you didn't see. And you know, maybe, maybe you couldn't, and I don't mean just you specifically, right. But like maybe as an audience, you can't necessarily discern and point to exactly, you know, where the 30 minutes are added on throughout the course of the movie. But I mean, they could have gone the route of making an 88 minute shot for shot remake. And instead they tried to, they tried to recreate a lot of like the, you know, top 20 to, you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever you want to say, like shots from that original movie, like a, a great number of those shots. Right. And, and, and basically translate them into this live action format to evoke that emotion, whether, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think it's a fair critique uh, either way. Um, but I don't, I didn't come out of the movie thinking that it was as, uh, as much a shot for shot remake as I kind of expected it to be granted. My expectations were like at an all time below probably. Yeah. I don't know. Scott, I think it just, for me, first of all, it cheapens the experience of the original because I think for future generations of kids, you know, they're going to have two options to choose from. And I don't know what is, what about that original is going to what is going to make them choose the original because they don't have the same sort of nostalgia for it in the way that, that we have. And so that, that disappoints me because the original is so great. And I think that this could tarnish the legacy of the original just by virtue of the fact that, you know, kids in the future may watch this movie instead of the original. And okay. Yeah. Maybe there's 30 minutes of additional footage, but again, I don't, I didn't see where the 30 minutes came in and I don't see a lot of people, uh, other people, critics, anybody really talking about, Oh, that look, here's all the things that they added into the movie, uh, you know, to, to make it different. And so, well, they, so that's the thing they didn't add it in to make it different. Like I, I'm not, I don't think John Favreau yeah, would yeah. say they added in 30 minutes of footage to make it different. They added in 30 minutes of footage to like flesh out, you know, certain plot points. And I, w- I, I would say that he would probably argue emotional points, although I think we'll talk about maybe the emotional resonance of this version of the movie versus the animated version. Like, I don't think that they're trying to do anything like macro level new with this film. And like, that is the problem. Right. But it's like, to me, I just didn't walk out of the movie thinking it was as bad as a like shot for shot remake because they added little points to it. They added some stuff with Nala. They added some stuff with Sarabi. They added some stuff with like Timon and Pumbaa. They added some stuff with Zazu. Like they just added little things, like very little things maybe some minor short scenes here and there fleshing out certain moments, not, not entire plot points, I guess, if that makes sense and not adding anything new, which I think is a negative. And, and it's a negative because like, clearly if you wanted something different, you don't get that. And the 30 minutes of footage don't give you new plot points and don't give you new things to discuss other than like, Oh, they flush this thing out, which we already experienced in the original one. And maybe that's a lack of efficiency. I think that's, a, I mean, I, I think that's a fair, a fair point and a fair argument to make. I think that, some of the things are nice and some of the new stuff that is added, I'm sure if we did like a direct comparison, which sounds like a total waste of time anyway, but like some of the jokes are really funny that they added. I liked some of the new voice acting takes, which I think probably added a new element and added some time in there. Cause I think they just generally gave people more lines. Well, last thing I'll say is just that whatever they intended to do with those 30 extra minutes didn't land with me. I, again, I couldn't even pick up really what was added except for maybe a couple of things. And whatever impact they were trying to have did not land with me. Um, so it didn't work, but 
to move on from that, I think the another the other larger point which I want to make is that I think the photorealistic animals, in addition to the fact that this movie lacks originality and is just a shot by shot remake, I don't think it's a good remake because I think the photorealistic animals create a very weird dynamic, and I think that. They look great. Yeah, right. And some of these scenes look great. There's no denying that. But there's no emotion whatsoever uh, in the storytelling. I, I think that and I think that that comes largely from the animals because they're not expressive. Um, and there's a, so there's this disconnect between what we're seeing when we hear the actors voices and or w- when we see the the faces of these lions and uh, when we hear the actors voices, there's there's just a complete disconnect there. And another thing that comes out of this is that a lot of the lions look the same or, or are not very distinguishable. Like literally during the final fight scene between Simba and Scar, I could not tell for the entire time which one was Simba and which one was Scar. There's, there's basically no way to tell. When they're standing alongside from each other, yeah. But when they're fighting at the end, no, not really. So I think that's weird. But the whole thing just feels like a nature documentary that somebody... yes linked up with the audio from the from the Lion King. And and so the the thing which made the original movie so great, which is that emotional, you know, heart at its center, that the story about this young lion dealing with the loss of his father and dealing with his possible responsibility for what happened to his father. That I didn't none of those emotional points hit me in the same way that they did in the original. Or if they did, it was only because I remembered the way that they were treated in the original. So unfortunately, I think that this movie turned out to be mostly what I expected it to be, which is a very slick looking, but completely empty. And I mean, I got to say pointless remake of a pretty classic Disney film. So save your money is what I would say. Yeah, I'm way more positive. I really enjoyed most of the voice cast in this film. I think a lot of the pleasure that I derived from the film, yes, of course, is what it's evoking from the animated original, right? Like re-experiencing the songs the maybe to the extent that i experience certain emotions at certain moments i certainly think that it does draw back to the original but like i think that the thing that if i had to point to two things that i really enjoyed about this movie and ultimately are like the biggest positive it's the voice cast for me i think that particularly billy eichner and seth rogan absolutely still the show i think john oliver is awesome i was unsure after his first couple lines but then over the course of the movie i really loved that performance I think that the you know the musical renditions and the slight you know tweaks to to the songs I thought were clever and creative. I know that I mean we've talked off air about it obviously and I know that you're not as big a fan and felt like the songs were overproduced but for me I didn't feel like it was any more or less produced than the animated versions of you know songs like I can't you know just can't wait to be king I felt like that was I mean a similar production value if anything, certain I know we talked about how I thought Be Prepared was less production value. Of course, you can joke that that's just because Chiu Telegy 4 can't sing. But I mean, regardless, the point is, like, I think I enjoyed what they tried to do with most of the songs. And, you know, yes, maybe the emotions I experienced listening to these songs, I'll never be able to separate it from, you know, the emotions that I have listening listening to the original versions of the songs either. But I also just think that they, these renditions are really good and really enjoyable in their own right. And I think that where this one fails, and, and this is just to further flesh out a point that you made, is that Disney nature documentary, photorealistic uh, CG animation, uh, part of, like, part of what, can, what comes with that is the fact that you can't really read any emotion on 
you know, in these lions, right? Like it's not, yeah, yeah. there I've read multiple, I think, I think it was, you know, Demi Adigeigi was talking about this on Letterboxd about how it's the fact that they don't have eyebrows and that that's like a huge conveyor of, or of emotion in, you know, nonverbal expressions. And I think that that does make a huge difference. And I think that it's a totally valid uh, criticism to make about how all of the emotional, you know, highs or lows of this film have to, I think, come from your memory of the original version, because I don't think that this, this version has like the nonverbal ability to communicate the emotional peaks and valleys of, you know, Simba, of Mufasa, of Scar, of any of those things. And it's such a heavy burden for the voice cast to have to do, do it all, do all the work for that. Um, and I think most of the time they just aren't able to do that because it's, it's impossible to. And so I think that's like probably the lowest point of the movie for me. That being said, I still had a good time. Yes, I'm sure part of it was because of the original and of memories of the original. But I, you know, I talked about how I really enjoyed the voice cast, particularly Timon and Pumbaa. I really appreciated the little details. Would I be able to sit here and tell you how certain, like what exactly specific things added up to the 30 minutes additional footage? No. Do I think that they could have done more with adding 30 minutes of footage? Yes. I did still enjoy the additional fleshed out nature of some of, of some of the different um, scenes, like the first scene with, with Scar and Zazu felt much longer than in the original version. And that interaction, I think, in, even, in, in an even faster and better way than the animated version, for example, I think shows you how like deranged and maniacal Scar is. Not that the animated version doesn't eventually also do that, but I, I just think that that particular elongated and prolonged interaction with Zazu and how he tries to torture him, basically, is a really great, is, is like for an, exa- an example of uh, how something was fleshed out in more detail that I thought was a good thing. Again, I do want to emphasize that ultimately they could have done more with the 30 minutes additional footage that they had. They could have, you know, done something more with Sarabi or Nala more than just like the little touches here and there. But I don't think that this movie is soulless or empty. I think that it has a lot of emotion, but limits itself and handicaps itself by its hook. And that being... Of course, it's like photorealism because ultimately I don't need a Disney nature doc of the Lion King. Like that's not what it, that's not what would have been the most affecting way to make a remake of the Lion King. And so as cool of an idea and an execution as it might be to, you know, to circle all the way back around to one of the original points you're making. We talked about how Aladdin, maybe like four or five times out of 10, we might go revisit the live action remake. Or I think maybe one time out of 20. I might go watch the live action version of the Lion King because I really liked like Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen even more so than their, you know, animated original counterparts. And so there are only very little things that I preferred in this movie over the original. And as much as I had a good time, my ultimate conclusion is that this probably wasn't necessary. Yeah, you can, I think you can just remove the probably, but yeah, I have more thoughts, but let's get into the specifics and I'm sure they'll come up. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know if we need to spend too much time on the specifics because there, like you said, there's not new plot details for us to talk about. There really is only the cast. And so I've kind of segmented out as the kind of pre-coup uh, cast, which is of course most of the cast, and then the post-coup cast, which is uh, primarily just a few additions and of course some changes for Simba and Nala. So just to get us started with the pre-coup cast, you have Simba played by, voiced by J.D. McCrary. Scott, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to lump several of these together, but, you know, you have Simba and Nala. Nala is Shahadi Wright Joseph. 
do you think that these kind of younger versions of what we're eventually going to get the, you know, adult music superstars in Donald Glover and and Beyonce, uh, do you think that these younger versions do themselves justice? And and what do you, did they add anything to this version of the movie? Not really. No. I mean, I think it's just, you know, not knowing these actors as I do, I don't think there's even that really appeal, that appeal of like, Oh, this is Beyonce, you know, who's reading these lines. Um, and so I don't think that there was anything really that these performances added, you know, beyond the performances of Jonathan Taylor Thomas and whoever played the younger Nala and the original Lion King, you know, that they, they serve their purpose. They have a they read their lines in a good spirited fashion, but, and, and, you know, I will say about the songs that I think that the difference for me is that when I hear the songs from the original movie, it, I, when I hear the songs, I see the characters in my head singing them. When I hear the songs in this movie, I I see an actor in the studio singing them. And I think in particular when we hear I Just Can't Wait to Be King, like when Simba first opens his mouth and sings, it sounds like a musical artist like lip syncing on an award show. Like it really does. It's so slick. Uh, it doesn't sound at all like a lion cub running across the uh, you know, wilderness like he is in the in the um in the movie when he's singing the song. And I, I don't necessarily think that the original song sounded that much like that either. But again, like I said, I think the original song is just rough enough to where it's more evocative uh, of what we're seeing on screen. Whereas this, I think, just kind of feels cold and impersonal, like a lot of the movie does. So I guess that's a circular way of saying, no, these performances didn't really do very much for me. Well, it's also these two, I mean, these two people like her, barely even actors, right? Like they're mainly artists and musicians. Like, yes, um, Shahadi Wright Joseph played one of the, like the daughter Mm -hmm. in Us, familiar this year. But besides that, these are like recording artists. And so they got them for their musical talents. And from my perspective, I think that they can sing. And I think that again, going back to the CG point and how it really handicaps this movie to the point that you're making is that, yeah, it, it feels like lip syncing because it's unnatural for a lion, for a photorealistic lion to be singing. And I mean, obviously that sounds like asinine to say, right? Cause it's so obvious, but ultimately you, you do have to let go of expect, like of that expectation of, of it being perfectly molded, right? Like when you watch an animated movie, you know, it's not real. And so I think it's much easier for your mind to sync the two up together. Right. But then you're watching this photorealistic, these photorealistic cubs <laughs> singing, I just can't wait to be king. And this bird singing, at, or, you know, what I forget what kind of bird that it is, but like it, what, what you, what you get the, the result is that it, you know, that it's not real, right? I mean, yes, you know that anim- the animated version is not real, but your mind does, isn't tricked into thinking it's supposed to be real by the way it visually looks. Right. And I think that that's probably a recurring part throughout the movie, but you know, ultimately it sounded like maybe I was, uh, I was less bothered by that than you. Because ultimately, I just you know enjoyed most of the songs. Yeah. Moving moving on, you know, we talked about the the bird already, and that is there is of course Zazu, voiced by John Oliver Scott. I already talked about how I think this is one of the one of the standout performances from the voice cast. Do you agree or do you disagree? No, I do agree. I think that this is this is one of the performances that is a step up from the original movie. I do think he makes more of an impression than Rowan Atkinson did as Zazu in the original. And I think that's because he's well cast as the sort of uh, town crier bird, right? Who goes around giving everybody the news. Who's better to do that than an actual newsman himself who, when you hear his voice, right, you immediately think of him sitting at the desk, 
um, as he does on on last week tonight, um, reading out whatever you know the the big story is for the episode, and so it fits the character of Zazu perfectly. And so I think that was definitely a smart bit of casting. And uh, for for the little screen time that he has, I think John Oliver adds a little bit of color. Um, so I did appreciate that. Yeah, I agree. I thought there was a hilarious amount of meta narrative going on there, of course, having him delivering the the morning news every day. And, you know, I would even go a step further and say, you know, I thought that John Oliver added a lot of color to this, to this, to this cast and to this performance. And I thought that a lot of the jokes uh, and additions that, because I think they knew, they knew what they had with him. Right. And I think that they, they, they gave him a lot more lines in a lot of these scenes where I talked about those like little small additions in a lot of scenes. And I think Zazu is someone who gets a lot of those little lines in a lot of scenes. And I think almost all of them really hit for me. And I think, I think it's a, though leveraging that character and knowing that they had something good going on there is one of the things this movie had going for it. All right, Scott, um, two more characters before we move on to the post coup. And that is uh, of course the adults in the pre coup. And that's uh, Mufasa and Scar Mufasa. Of course we have the returning talents of James Earl Jones, a little bit older, his voice somehow a little bit deeper I think than it was in the original, and then she would tell Edu for who I think it's fair to say tries to do something a little bit different with Scar, maybe to a questionable amount of success. Yeah, I think first of all with James Earl Jones, he sounds tired, and he probably he probably is right because he's old. Number one, he's older, and number two, they've asked him to come in and read the exact same lines that he read for this movie twenty five years ago. Um, so there's not a lot in this for him, except I guess a a pretty nice paycheck, but you know, I guess I do appreciate the effort of them getting him because he probably does have the most memorable performance from the original film. Uh, and you know, it's hard to think about Mufasa without thinking about his baritone voice. But I think that's why Chiwetel Ejiofor's performance on a level doesn't work because I think what the original had was, you know, Mufasa with James Earl Jones's voice. He's so intimidating, right? And you have, if you want to have somebody who's a foil for that character, you have to have somebody who sounds equally intimidating. And they absolutely did that with Jeremy Irons, who was terrific as Scar in the original, and you know really did have a menace in his voice to match the authoritative tone of James Earl Jones. And I don't think Chiwetel Ejiofor really brings that here. In addition to the fact that he's his singing voice, if he even is really trying to sing, is not very great. I also think he just doesn't have the kind of menace. Uh, that this character should have because he is one of the most despicable villains in all of the Disney, uh, you know, animated movies. He kills Simba's father in front of him. His brother. Yeah. And, you know, is is running, is basically running all of the lions out of town uh, after he takes over as the new king of Pride Rock. He's really pretty villainous. And the way that he sort of gaslights Simba is obviously also really despicable. So I think that you needed someone who could bring that kind of menace that Jeremy Irons brought. And I don't think that Chiwetel Ejiofor really brought that for me. Yeah, I feel similarly. I think I I did read an interesting take on this character in that it seemed like they were trying to make him more crazed and less menacing in this movie, which isn't something that I admittedly thought of myself walking out of the theater. But I think they're just trying to show how deranged and I don't know, basically like psycho Scar is in terms of, you know, you talk about gaslighting Simba trying to take over and so like greedy and power hungry and less the stereotypical menacing evil that you might expect. And I think that 
the fact that I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming neither of us thought that going out of the film. And the fact that that wasn't clear is that they just didn't execute it well enough and that they didn't change enough in, in the character itself if they were going for that in the lines, in the way it's portrayed in scenes to show that sort of deranged nature, if that is what they were trying to do, right? Which I can only, which kind of makes sense to me given the performance that Ed Four did put in, right? And that there, because it's not that I don't think he wouldn't be capable of being menacing, but it certainly wasn't a menacing performance. Ultimate, my ultimate idea would have been they just really gave the the different psychological take on Scar a better treatment. Yeah. And had, if that is what they were going for and had Ed Four lean more into that and have more to work with from that point perspective, but they just didn't do that well enough. And maybe that's because the rest of the movie just feels very like almost exactly the same or very similar to the original. And so you, maybe if you were coming in clean and, and not having watched the animated original, maybe you would get, you would, maybe you would get that out of Scar's performance. Right. But because we're all so tied to that, to that original animated version, you have certain expectations of Scar and it's impossible to overcome those expectations when none of your other expectations for any of your other characters have been subverted. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to that post coup life, there are, of course, updates for Simba and Nala that I've already alluded to. Donald Glover and Beyonce join the cast. Uh, you know, you mentioned that J.D. McCrary and Shahadi Wright-Joseph don't have the wow factor of, oh, my God, it's Donald Glover and Beyonce reading the scripts. So, Scott, did Beyonce and Donald Glover have the wow factor of, oh, my God, Beyonce and Donald Glover are reading the script? Eh, not so much. Um I think the characters at this point in the movie just aren't that interesting anymore. I think that is maybe the main fault of The Lion King is that the thing that stops it from being top of the hill for me in terms of Disney animated is that Simba is not the greatest leading character. Um, And I think there's only so much Donald Glover can do with that, especially when he's taking over like more than halfway through the movie, practically. Um, You know, again, he's reading the same lines as as um, as. Matthew Broderick was in the original. And so I think there's only, you know, especially when in a voice role, there's not a whole lot you can do to amplify the original performance to, to take a step up on the original performance. And so, yeah, I mean, he sings the songs fine, but uh, as far as his performance, nothing that really put it over um, Matthew Broderick's for me. Uh, as far as Beyonce goes, obviously she's in the movie because she can sing and she sings, right? However, I will say that one of the worst moments in the entire movie is when they are going back to pride rock when when nala has convinced him to go back to pride rock and there there's just like a a shot of them running across the desert and there's just like a random beyonce like song which i guess maybe was like an original song for the movie that she's just singing in the background it literally i know i talk about it being a, a music video feeling like a music video that was a music video what you were watching in that scene literally a song by Beyonce that had nothing to do with what was going on on screen. It's literally just a Beyonce song. She's just singing like the word spirit a bunch of times as they are running back to Pride Rock. It was so pointless. It was, in fact, an original song for this movie. Well, that doesn't uh, do anything for me, honestly, because the way that they employed it was just stupid. I think that's fair criticism. I did not like that song. Yeah, no, I, I think I generally agree. It's so rushed, right? The evolution of these characters is so rushed because you fast forward X years. I don't even know if it's if it's clear how many years fast forward. And they make some jokes about it and uh, about how they just like he just grew like four hundred pounds or whatever over the course of the song, which I think was I actually thought that was pretty funny. But I think because that development is so it, or that the timeline fast forwards and then the development of an evolution of Simba is so rushed in that portion where he like 
meets Nala and and like meets Rafiki that it all feels not really possible to have such like a dramatic effect in such a short amount of time. And I think that that maybe is just one of the shortcomings of the original movie. And I think that ultimately this role, it's limited, right? I think for both Beyonce and for Donald Glover, I think they again, like their, you know, child, they're, they're like cub counterparts. They do fine, but they don't stand out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Scott, the highlight of the movie for me, Timon and Pumbaa, Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen, are you as positive on them as I am? Yeah, absolutely. They are great. They are absolutely the highlight of the film. There is no denying that whatsoever. Um, I think, you know, they're perfectly cast in these roles. Billy Eichner is someone who I think is just one of the most hilarious people. Going back to Billy on the street, which never fails to make me bend over double with laughter whenever I see one of the videos. Um, and yeah, they're great. Like this, that is the one clear area where they have added new material and it's just new jokes for them. And a lot of them are funny. Um, I did laugh several times in the movie. I think my biggest laugh was when they, when Timon starts singing, be our guest from beauty and the beast um, at the end, when they're trying to cause the distraction with Pumbaa outside of um, Pride Rock once they've gotten back that was hilarious to me but yeah these characters just they're riffing a lot of it does feel very improvised and I think that's probably why I liked it so much because the rest of the movie feels so calculated and you're like here finally here's something real here's something natural um, they, they've worked so hard to try and get this natural uh, feel to the movie this realistic feel to it with the photorealistic animals and yet the realest thing in the movie to me seemed to be the the sort of off-the-cuff comedy of these two characters. So yeah, they're great. Um, I will say, I think if there's one thing they could have cut from the original, they should have cut all the freaking fart jokes with Pumbaa. <laughs> but yes. other than that, uh, I think these characters are great. And uh, definitely a step up over uh, Nathan Lane and whoever played Pumbaa in the original. Yeah, the, the fart humor, although I'm sure it will make the kids laugh, just felt out of place to me. But that is pretty much the only negative thing I can talk about these two performances because I just had a grin on my face the entire time they were on screen and they, they did have more lines in this version and they did. I think that one of the things they made about all the songs is they tried to like add in little commentary within the songs, right? Like you talk about how some of it, there was particularly evident in the be prepared song, right? It almost just seems just like a monologue. And I think that there are little moments in all the songs that are kind of like that with maybe a few exceptions, but I think it's especially true for can you feel the love tonight? And in, you know, in the jungle, I actually forget the name of that song. It's not in the jungle. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that's what I was going to say. Actually, that was probably one of what I was going to point out is my favorite moment. So I, I'll save it until then, I guess. Yeah. And I just think that the, the lion sleeps tonight is the name of the song sleeps tonight. there we go. Yes. I mean, two of my all time favorite songs in Disney movies already. And Yes, hearing it again will always be amazing, especially when it's in a movie theater. So I can't give full credit to the new version. But I think I even enjoyed the new versions, versions of these songs even more. And I and I do want to compliment on that because I have been listening to those two songs on repeat on Spotify, basically, since I saw this movie on Thursday night. I absolutely adored, adored Timon and Pumbaa, what they added to the movie and their new and the new parts, the new small things that were added to their characters over the course of the film. All right, Scott, any last comparisons to the original before we wrap things up? Because I think that just about covers it. No, I mean, again, all of the 
the big shot, it just really did at certain points feel so obligatory. Like I'm like, because I knew we were going to get the exact same shots as we got through in the original. So I'm just sitting there most of the time like, all right, come on, let's just get this shot over with. Like I know that the last shot of him standing at the edge of, of the, you know, mountain or whatever like he did at the start of the movie here i know it's coming so let's just get it over with Mm -hmm. um and so that was just kind of my my feeling throughout a lot of the movie it's so interesting that that's the reaction right and i don't necessarily disagree i mean that wasn't my personal experience but i definitely see where that's coming from because the goal was to do that the goal was to preserve you know having you know read and listened to enough interviews of john Favreau because i was really curious what the intentions of this movie were knowing that it was going to be such a faithful retelling of, of the original. Uh, and it, it sounded like they, they it, at least from John Favreau's perspective, from, from the interviews that I've listened to, it really sounds like they were concerned with making changes because some of those, those shots that you're talking about throughout the movie, it, certain highlights of the film are so iconic and so important to people that it sounded like they felt worried to not include those shots. Right. And it's so interesting that the response to them being then included in the movie is that, it's a shot for shot remake. It's, you know, that's, you know, creatively bankrupt. It's a soulless cash grab. It, it's so interesting. Cause like, you know, yes, does Disney want to make a lot of money off this film? And did they, I'm sure make certain creative decisions in order to evoke those, you know, nostalgic emotions to the original. Yes. But I also think that it's somewhere in the middle of like John Favreau probably, you know, wants to make a really good movie that satisfies audiences while also adding his own very subtle, asterisk uh, additions to the movie. And I think it's interesting the that there, because I do think he's being genuine when he says that like, he's worried that people won't like the new movie if they don't include the iconic shots that everyone remembers. And so I just find that such a, such an interesting catch 22 maybe for the filmmakers. Well, I just don't think that they got the right balance, right? Like I think there is a way for you to do those shots and it not, and it not feel so tired and obligatory, but they're just doing that throughout the entire movie. I think if you just single out a few shots um, and you say, okay, we're going to do these shots again. And also, you know, in addition to, we're going to change the plot around some, like it, it almost makes me think of like star Wars, the force awakens to, to a, to a degree. Like, you know, we have like the shot of the millennium Falcon or whatever, when the millennium Falcon first gets revealed in the desert, and it's like so satisfying, right? Here's this moment of nostalgia, like we've seen the Millennium Falcon before. But because of the way that they worked it into this new story, uh, you know, the nostalgia moments hit right. And I think in general, that movie does a great job of balancing the new with the old um, and giving us just the right amount of nostalgia. And I just think that was the problem with this movie is that they just the whole thing was nostalgia. And if they had employed those uh, nostalgic moments, those iconic shots more strategically, they could have pulled it off, but they didn't do that. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a great comparison, personally. Uh, the movies are just completely different. What they're trying to do is completely different. The Force Awakens, I mean, maybe maybe some people out on Twitter would say that it's, uh, maybe it is a remake of A New Hope, but I personally wouldn't say that. And obviously, The Lion King is trying to be a remake. And, you know, I think it'd be a fair comparison if they were making a real, not direct-to-DVD sequel to The Lion King. Then you can say that's the approach they should take. But to me, it's just it's a different it's a different can of worms when you're actually just trying to do the remake of the movie. I think that you're right that it needs to be better in terms of the balance and you know balancing the nostalgia with the new changes that they have been successful in other you know live action adaptations like with Aladdin that we you know that we were referencing earlier. I just think that they went a direction that wasn't that right, and this is the product that we got for better or for worse. And uh, I know that you feel for worse. For me, I'm a little bit mixed, but 
um, ultimately, I think we can probably both agree that they didn't get the balance right, whatever that balance should have been. Yeah, I agree. All right, Scott, wrap-up phase. You've already alluded to what your favorite scene is, but let's hear it. Yeah, I really like what they did with the scene where Timon and Pumbaa sing uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons song. I think that uh, in the original, so they, they only sing like a couple lines of the song before you know they get interrupted by what's going on in the scene. In this um, in this one, they let the scene go out, drag out a little bit more. They let them sing more of the song. And they also, you also get the element of all of the other animals, like all of their, their other friends in the, in the forest, like mm-hmm. come out and start joining them, uh, in the song until there's, it's really like a whole chorus there that's singing the song with them. And I thought that was a clever addition and, uh, highlighted that song more than it did in the original movie. So I like that a lot. Yeah, and the and also adding the, the kind of acapella element of the song itself, I thought was a really great narrative or production uh, flair there for for the song mm-hmm. itself, and I really love. That's one of my favorite moments as well. Yeah, yeah, you know, Scott. Honestly, I didn't realize that was going to be your favorite because that is my favorite as well. Kind of like kind of like I already alluded to. I've been listening to that and can you feel the love tonight on repeat on Spotify since Thursday night? Uh, so it's hard for me to go a different direction, but if I had to, I didn't realize, you know, how much I'd be affected by the opening shot with the circle of life with that song. I didn't realize how powerful that song, that's the thing. Right. And I just had, I'd kind of forgotten how awesome it was. And, you know, as much as the rest of the film maybe doesn't work as, you know, doesn't quite all come together for largely because of that, you know, the live action, computer generated, photorealistic presentation of the film. I think it works amazingly well in those first few moments with the circle of life and showing, you know, no dialogue, all the different scenes, the, you know, of course that you recall from the original Lion King. And I think that's, that's a moment in the movie where not only does it evoke the original animated version, but it's also brilliant in its own right. And would, I think, I think I would argue that it would have the same effect on someone not having seen the animated version. Yeah. I mean, you just can't mess that scene up. And that is one thing that I think I would have been upset if they had changed that scene, honestly, any, because it is one of the great opening scenes in cinema history. Um, And so, yeah, like they they do start out on a high note by following that scene because they really had no choice. Um, But yeah, so that's my take. Yeah, there you go. Put a score on it, Scott. What are you giving The Lion King? I have to say, you know, I felt coming out of it, I was like, that was below average. But the more that I think about it, the less I enjoy it. Um, I think that just the whole concept behind this movie is very wrongheaded and that uh, so much money and so many resources went into this that could have been put into something. You know, I'm not saying you have to put it into something original, but a better remake, something like, you know, they were able to do with Aladdin. Um, it just feels like a waste to me. So don't waste your money. I'm giving this a 3.8. Uh, yeah, Scott, I'm obviously, anyone listening to the podcast will be able to tell that I'll be more positive on it than you, but it's not going to be in my top 10 by the end of the year. I think it's safe to say uh, 6.4. Hopefully it's not there right now either. <laughs> it is not. It is not there right now either. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our discussion of The Lion King. Uh, can't wait to see this movie in another 25 years next time with the realistic fur technology that Katz is using. That'll be a real great experience. Uh, while we wait on that announcement, however, let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be discussing some recent rumors, some trailers, and some news. In fact, I think quite a bit of Marvel news coming out of San Diego Comic-Con as uh, their conference or their panel just happened while we've been recording over there. So we'll be right back. And when we return, we'll have all of that for you. Whee! 
Part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, let's jump right into the news because we have a little bit to cover. Following up on our Little Mermaid stories over the past few weeks, we got, I think, probably the last bit of casting news or casting rumors, I should say. And that is that it sounds like Harry Styles, of course, of Dunkirk and One Direction fame, will probably be playing Prince Eric. And Javier Bardem is in talks to play King Triton. Are these uh, two final good bits of casting here? uh, Or do you think that they could have done better? Oh, yes, Harry Styles, primarily known for his role in Dunkirk and nothing else. Um, I think, you know, these are fine. I think they are solid additions to um, a cast that is already was already looking really strong. With, of course, with, with uh, Aquafina and Jacob Tremblay and Halle Bailey in there um, and Melissa McCarthy. I think it's a strong overall cast and uh, these should be two solid additions. I'm always in favor of having you know, singers in some of the main roles, especially when you have a singer in Halle Bailey, who's going to be playing Ariel. It makes sense to have also a singer in Harry Styles playing Prince Eric. Uh, So I think that will work well. And Javier Bardem, not sure if he can sing, but I guess we're going to find out. (laughs) Yes, we are. And I think that, right, if you're trying to balance acting and singing, I think that you probably couldn't have done too much better than, than Harry Styles, you know, as long as with his feet, obviously firmly planted in, his uh, discography and his musical career, but also having experience in a big production like Dunkirk. So I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And as for Javier Bardem, I think it's a cool casting. We'll see if he can sing exactly to your point. Yeah. All right, Scott, sticking with Disney, uh, but switching over, of course, to putting on, I suppose, our uh, Marvel lens briefly, but we will talk about Comic-Con separately uh, later. But we learned this week that the production of Akira over at Warner Brothers uh, has been indefinitely suspended. And I think that is most likely because Taika Waititi has been confirmed to be directing Thor 4, the first uh, sub franchise with a four next to it in the MCU. Scott, how big of a deal was this to you? One, that we are confirmed for a Thor 4 and two, that Taika is coming back to direct it. Yeah, it definitely seems like the smart move for Marvel. I know I still haven't seen Thor Ragnarok yet, and that's a crime. I keep forgetting that you haven't seen it. God. (laughs) I will watch it before Thor Love and Thunder comes out. Um, Ooh, tease. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, this is absolutely the right move. Uh, Again, I mean, what Taika Waititi did with Thor Ragnarok was make Thor into, like, one of people's favorite characters after two what I think most Marvel fans would say uh, were less than satisfying movies, although I do like the first Thor to a, a fair amount. But uh, I think this movie took the Thor character to a whole nother level. Um, and the whole vibe that Taika Waititi brought to Thor Ragnarok is now something that seems like other directors are trying to sort of knock off in some of their big properties coming out uh, You know, in the coming years, like Masters of the Universe, for example, seems to be going for a similar sort of vibe sort sort of vibe. Um so this is the 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 right move for Marvel and it's unfortunate that it, it had to coincide with the Akira getting pushed back um because I think it has been pushed back before. 
yeah for like 20 years <laughs> yeah uh but i'm not at, you know i'm not super familiar with the original so um it's a sacrifice i'm willing to make i suppose yeah I, i'll as you know I guess this is putting more money into the coffers of Disney, but I'll take Thor four of Akira over Akira right now. Yeah. Um, I do hope that we do get Akira at some point, but that's neither here nor there. Cause we will be waiting longer for it, but it's not like we haven't waited for a long time already. All right, Scott sticking with some, like I would say uh, Marvel tangent news. And that is that following up on all of our discussions about the new bond 25 movie and casting and how that, and the trials and tribulations of the production over there. But we heard this week that Lashana Lynch, of course, from Captain Marvel, so there's the connection, um, might be introduced as the new 007 in Bond 25. Scott, what do you think of this news? Yeah, I think this is this could be really cool. Um, obviously, we kind of knew that Daniel Craig's time as James Bond, as 007, was coming to an end as he gets up there in the years. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes sense to question what's going to come next. And I think this would be a natural next move for the franchise to make. We have never had a female 007. And of course, it's completely plausible to have a female 007. You know, we're not talking about her playing a James Bond character. We're talking about her playing a a completely different character that just happens to have the same uh, agent number. So I think, you know, Mm -hmm. this makes sense in the way, in the same way that, you know, other uh, other roles in the Bond franchise have transitioned over the years. Um, Whether it's, you know, Judi Dench handing over the reins to Ray Fiennes as M. Uh, You know, I think it's just, it's something that this franchise has done and, uh, obviously this has been a big deal for, uh, dubious reasons. Uh, I don't really think it should be. Yeah, I actually think, I think this is fantastic. I think this is awesome. This is a transitional phase for the bond franchise that they've never done before. Right. Anytime we had a quote unquote new 007, I, a new James Bond, it's always been kind of a soft reboot every time with a new character. Right. And the fact that they are continuing to develop this specific plot line that has been, you know, of course, it's had its low points, you could argue, with Quantum of Solace and Spectre being kind of the two lesser of the four movies of Daniel Craig we've had so far. But the fact that it's taking this overarching uh, narrative arc of Daniel Craig's James Bond, and then if they do move forward with this, just transition the 007 mantle, to your point exactly, I think that's spot on, to a new person who's not going to be Jane Bond. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And then it, it creates a, a narrative thread across the movies that we that hasn't really existed in the bond franchise from you know 007 to 007 before and i think that that personally that would make me even more invested in these films and so i'm i'm all all on the uh lashana lynch as the next 007 train uh for me i think it's a really smart move over there from the people behind uh bond the bond franchise yeah totally all right, Scott, moving on to the next story. We learned a little bit more about Damien Chazelle's next film, Babylon, this week, and that primarily that it's set to star Emma Stone, who, of course, teamed up with Chazelle in La La Land with Brad Pitt as the two lead actors in this film. Scott, does this get you excited for Chazelle's next project after maybe the you know slight letdown of First Man last year? Do you think that this is his opportunity and will he bounce back completely? Well, I don't know if I can say at this point whether he will bounce back completely, but uh, of course I'm excited. I think that it, I, you know, he's one of those directors. I'm going to be excited about anything that he's doing at this point. He's one of the most visionary young directors that we have working. Yes, First Man was a slight letdown, as you said, but this, you know, some of the highs in that movie were so incredibly high, like including maybe even the best sequence of any movie last year with that moon landing scene. 
And so, yeah, you know, Emma Stone, great actress, did great work with Chazelle in uh, La La Land. And Brad Pitt, you know, he's a movie star. Um, and so I think, I guess I don't, we don't really know much about uh, the plot for this movie yet, do we? Not really. What what I've, you know, what these articles that have written, that have been written up in response to these kind of casting rumors have said is that it's going to be a drama that's solidly in the R-rated category that mixes real and fictional <laughs> characters set in the golden age of Hollywood. So kind of sounds a little bit like Brad Pitt's <laughs> yeah. uh, coming movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, and um, and Mank over at Netflix that we talked about yeah. last week. So, yeah, I mean... He's he's going to put butts in seats no matter what. So this is good news. So you do think Damien Chazelle is at a point now where people go see movies because it's Damien Chazelle behind the camera? Oh, uh, well, I know Scott Mance does. No, I mean, I I think people in certain circles, like I don't, he doesn't have the sort of pull of like a Tarantino at this point where he's really crossed over into the mainstream despite being, uh, you know, a somewhat somewhat independent Autor. in his sensibilities. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know that Chazelle is quite there yet, but I mean, yeah, people loved La La Land, obviously. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Whiplash was kind of a a sneaky hit as well. So I I do think that people who have the least bit of uh, interest, who who follow film at least a little bit, know who he is and are probably attracted to the work that he's putting out. Yeah, I kind of view him on a similar tier as Wes Anderson, obviously very different filmmakers, but I think in terms of their pervasiveness maybe and pop culture although i think having said that chazelle's probably a little bit ahead of anderson just because his films are more mainstream well i don't know just i don't know about that just because i think anderson number one obviously has been around longer and number two has a more distinct style than um chazelle does Mm -hmm. so i still think maybe i would put anderson a little bit higher but i i don't think your point is off base. I yeah. do think that like in terms of name recognition, yeah. they're on the same level. Yeah. He's not the level of, uh, n- neither of them are the level of someone like, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino or, Tarantino. um, Christopher Nolan or someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no excited for that movie as well. I think it's going to be really interesting to see Emma Stone and Brad Pitt opposite each other in a film that, yeah, maybe is reminiscent of once upon a time in Hollywood. It seems like this might, this type of movie might be, you know, a, a trend, and then over the next few years, we'll see how many of these we get. I hope that I'm not exhausted of this uh, genre of film by the time it arrives is my only concern. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a fair point to make. But we'll see what we think about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next week. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. All right, moving on. Greta Gerwig uh, appears to have her next gig after, of course, uh, Little Women later this year. And she will be writing the script with Noah Baumbach for Warner Brothers live action Barbie film with Margot Robbie set to lead the cast. Scott, is this it's weird to be talking about a live action Barbie movie, especially one that I'm kind of more excited about than I was for Lion King this week. Oh, Scott, I won't lie. I am very excited for this movie, especially now that we get this news. I think that this has to be this has the potential to be something very sort of edgy and subversive, you know, because obviously Barbie, you know, it has there's a certain cultural significance that Barbie has that I think is open to a lot of uh, cultural critique uh, that these two auteurs, I guess you could say, can explore with this movie. And of course you have Margot Robbie, who I think perfectly cast absolutely has the look uh, of, you know, who you would expect to play Barbie. Um, And so I um, am personally really excited for this. I think this could be a sort of 
cult comedy in the way that like a Mean Girls or Clueless was for uh, previous generations. It will just be interesting to see what tone they decide to adopt, whether they, you know, are going for something that kids that that is more targeted at kids or are they trying to appeal to a more young adult, um, you know, millennial audience? Yeah, I will say this much. If they are targeting kids, they have signed the wrong writers for the script. Yeah, yeah, which makes me think they're not, of course. Yeah, like they are throwing money down the drain, getting Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach if this is supposed to be a kid's film. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And having said that, I think that they are going to go for something subversive, which I think for Warner Brothers is a huge risk, right? Like this should be a franchise that is targeting that younger. Like you would think inherently that it would be targeting that younger audience. But what is what's the most money a Greta Gerwig movie has even made? Like she's not right. Like she's not writing films for everyone. Like, you know, yes, of course, Lady Bird was, a, you know, in some way was a cultural phenomenon, but that movie still did not make that much money at the box office relative speaking to other you know massive hits or less than you might think um so i think it is a it's an interesting move by warner brothers but you know what having just reviewed the lion king you know what i'll say i'll applaud them for making this sort of this sort of move yeah i hope you know another thing you could compare it to maybe is like lego movie even the way that you take like a huge brand name and turn it into something really original and creative i hope that's what they go for yeah I do not imagine these two movies will have those two movies will have the same feel though. Well, yeah, I obviously, you know, Lord and Miller, they do their own thing, but in terms of uh, what they represent, I think they could be something similar. Uh, yeah. And just on up on that Ladybird box office. I mean, that movie only made $78 million. So yeah, even, even as popular as it was in maybe my friend group, because uh, we are a certain age uh, millennial, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, not even so to speak exactly right okay yeah so moving on from that a little news coming out of comic-con this week but not yet uh, to marvel uh, a little bit earlier this week we learned some more information about the follow-up to halloween that david gordon green will be directing uh, called halloween kills set release in 2020 of course with the full female cast returning there and jamie lee curtis uh, the other two people's names are escaping me right now but not only will we be getting that follow-up in 2020 We'll be getting another movie in 2021 filming back to back, and that's called Halloween End. So they're really going for this kind of sequel trilogy of movies, Scott. We've never seen that before, so I don't know how that's going to go. But yeah, coming in 2020 and 2021, they're betting hard that uh, Halloween fatigue won't set in. But like we were talking about off air, it's Blumhouse backing these. They're going to be on a small budget. And even if there is a little bit of fatigue that sets in after the 2020 Halloween movie, I think that it probably will still make enough money on Halloween ends in 2021 to make that low production budget back. Yeah, Scott, I really enjoyed the first movie. And I think uh, I'm down for these sequels, you know, whether they're good or not, they will give me something spooky to go see on Halloween, I'm sure. Uh, And yeah, like you said, with Blumhouse, uh, you kind of know what you're going to get. But pretty much all of what they've churned out so far that I've seen, I have enjoyed. Um, So yeah, I'm looking forward to these. I also enjoyed the 2018 uh, remake sequel that retconned all of the Halloween yeah, franchise. They retconned like eight movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and I'm totally on board. David Gordon Green is the right guy. A little disappointed he's spending the next, you know, two plus years of his life only working on Halloween movies. But uh, if he produces something of the quality of the previous one uh, that he made, of course, 2018 last year, uh, then yeah, I'm not going to be complaining too much. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see where they go with it because you know what? I think coming out of that movie last year, we didn't say there, we thought there was going to immediately be a sequel. So, 
Yeah, but you know, with these horror movies, with these series, these slasher series like Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, the person, you know, the killer is never really dead. <laughs> True. I mean, it's supernatural anyway. So yeah, even is. Okay, Scott. Last bit of news before we change gears and talk Comic Con for Marvel. Baz Luhrmann has found his Elvis. It's going to be Austin Butler, who is in the Dead Don't Die, and will be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next week. But Scott, what does this casting do for you on a scale of one to? thrilled how excited are you about another Baz Luhrmann movie uh probably somewhere in the middle uh well it, in terms of uh, excited about a, a new Baz Luhrmann movie I'm near the couldn't care less but in terms of the casting I'm probably somewhere in the middle just because I, I mean I do think it's the right direction to go to cast someone who's not as well known you know we heard some names that were being shopped around like Miles Teller and Aaron Taylor Johnson but I think it is the right move to go with somebody who is not as well known because I think you're going more for, you know, what they bring to their performance than for their name recognition. And so I think he, I mean, he does have the look of, of Elvis. Um, if you just look at pictures of him. Um, so yeah, I think it's good casting, but I'm not a Baz Luhrmann fan at all. Uh, I can't, I can't imagine what sort of tone he's going to bring to this movie. Uh, but it's probably not going to be something that appeals to me uh, because he does just have such an over-the-top flamboyant style uh, that I think does not suit a lot of the source material that he chooses to adapt in a lot of his movies. Um, and I can't see how that style is going to adapt to an Elvis movie in a way that isn't completely obnoxious. Would you prefer the Lion King remake be directed by Baz Luhrmann or John Favreau? <sighs> John Favreau. Good answer. <laughs> that was the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I don't actually care anything at all about this movie. I've already shown myself as someone who hasn't been that enthralled with the recent musical biopic like movies. And I don't imagine something that Baz Luhrmann creates. You know, actually, you know, you know what? Now that I think about it, you know, at least Baz Luhrmann will do something different. So I'll be. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say too. Interesting yeah. to see that he, what he does with it. I just think that his interestingly different take on it will probably not be that enjoyable either, but uh, yeah. just based on other films from him that I have seen and not liked. Indeed. All right, Scott, it's time. Marvel, San Diego, Marvel Studios, San Diego Comic-Con show. We learned that in 2020 and 2021, We'll be getting 10 new properties from the MCU, some over at Disney Plus. In fact, I will say half of them over at Disney Plus, half of them in the MCU film uh, proper. Of course, those Disney Plus shows, it's been talked about and confirmed on the panel today that they will be tying in closely with what's going on in the MCU um, even if they don't affect future movies, uh, they will tie into the canon of that much more closely than anything like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Daredevil or, um, you know, Jessica The Punisher, Jones. Or yeah. Jessica Jones, any of those Netflix shows ever did. And so starting out, we're going to be getting three properties in 2020, uh, two of them movies, one of them a Disney Plus show. For the movies, as we expected, Black Widow is going to be that first one, May 1st. 2020 uh, learned probably the most of all of any of them uh, about black widow at this panel. They showed a little bit of footage, but basically what we learned is that it's going to, this movie is going to be set after the events of civil war, but also contain flashback sequences. And we're going to learn about what Budapest was. Uh, it was, it was revealed there, but basically what we learned is that Natasha Romanoff is going to be dealing with uh, her place kind of in the Avengers in that universe 
after the event, her particular events of it within civil war and how she feels like she may be betrayed uh, other members of the team and whatnot. But we've also learned a little bit about Florence Pugh's character. Who's going to be someone who's like a sister to uh, Natasha Romanoff playing Yelena Belova, who's also been someone in the comic book universe or uh, in the comic books themselves, I should say that has played her has adopted the black widow moniker. So it's, I'm really intrigued about this one. Uh, Scott, do you have anything to add about it? Yeah, no, I mean, just that I think, you know, a lot of this, this is probably some of the least surprising news, right? Like we did think this would be the first movie. We did think that, uh, you know, most of these plot details that were announced, you know, we had kind of guessed a lot of those beforehand. But yeah, I am excited. You know, if this is the last that we see of Black Widow, which I guess there's there may be a chance of that. I'm ready to get some closure for this character because I do think um, that her her death was, you know, one of the the high emotional points of Endgame for sure. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, especially with the great cast of Scarlett Johansson, Rachel Weisz, and Florence Pugh uh, leading the bill. I think, uh, yeah, this is going to be great. Uh, the other movie in 2020 set in November uh, is going to be The Eternal Scout. We've heard so much casting rumors and news about this, and yet we got some massive confirmations. Of course, uh, Angelina Jolie, Richard Madden, Kumail Nanjiani. I mean, there's a long list of people who are casting this. This feels like it could be that first, you know, Avengers level ensemble cast movie that we get in Phase Four, and it's going to be the second movie in phase four. So it's a big deal here. All new characters. I don't think we, uh, I don't think any of these characters are, are going to be returning from a different movie. Scott, are you excited about this movie yet? Or do you still need to know more about it? No, I am excited. I think, you know, we don't know a lot about it. We don't know a lot about the story or these characters, but the fact that we do have such a great cast, you know, you all, you didn't mention Brian Tyree Henry, which of course I'm excited about um, yep. as well is going to be in there. I think the fact that we do have such a great cast, it shows that Marvel is putting a lot of faith in this franchise to, or, you know, in this pro- particular property to, uh, you know, appeal to a lot of people. Um, I think this is, you know, t- probably going to be the the character or the, the property that the least amount of people are familiar with that we've seen so far in the MCU. So I think, again, the fact that they... Uh, you know, are are putting such a flashy cast in it says to me that they that they do think that this property has legs, even if people, you know, haven't heard of it. And that's something that's exciting to me because um, you know, the MCU has introduced a lot of great new characters, characters that I wasn't familiar with prior to the MCU being a thing. Even Iron Man, um, you know, was not a, a hugely well known character before the MCU. So I'm excited to see what they can do with these new characters. There's a lot of people in this movie, and I just really can't wait for this one because I'm really excited about it. I, I love Richard Madden, of course, you know, talked about him on Rocket Man and how I maybe think that he didn't quite do himself some justice in that one based on, you know, his particular character in the film, not necessarily any fault of his own, but he's going to be kind of the lead role, it seems like, in this movie. And I just can't wait to see more. Yeah. All right, Scott, the other thing from 2020 that we heard is a little bit more details about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, and the detail is that it's coming fall 2020. I don't know if we really learned anything else about, about it besides that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm still on board for these TV series. I like the way that they're spacing them out so that I don't have to, you know, deal with trying to watch multiple shows at the same time. I think that's uh, a no brainer, honestly, for Marvel to do that. Yeah, I think that works really well. I think that the only thing we did get confirmed that had been rumored was that Helmet Zemo will be returning and he will be in full villain form. He'll have his, you know, villain costume and everything, unlike in Civil War when he was kind of portrayed as a more human figure. Yeah, and I do really like Daniel Brule, so I'm excited yeah. for that. 
yeah, fall 2020, a little bit disappointing coming out of this that we're not going to be getting one of these Disney Plus series at launch and we're going to have to wait a full year after the launch of Disney Plus or, you know, nine or 10 months after after the launch to be getting it. But you know what? I will sacrifice the time because uh, we got plenty of other TV shows to be watching. And we are getting Mandalorian, so. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, because we are getting the Mandalorian uh, and I'm willing to be patient with the Disney plus uh, original content for the quality that I'm hoping for a uh, quality similar to that of the movies themselves on these Disney plus series. Mm-hmm. Cause if they're that quality, Scott, that'll be amazing. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Moving on to 2021, we'll speed through some of these. Cause generally speaking, we just know less about them. And so what we have here is three movies, four TV shows coming out on Disney plus uh, we have from the TV show department, WandaVision confirmed for spring 2021, Loki confirmed for spring 2021, Hawkeye confirmed for fall 2021. So those are the three Disney Plus TV shows that we also had heard rumors about and knew were probably coming. And then one that had been kind of rumored, but definitely not in the mainstream as much. I had seen mention of it before, and that is a animated short series called What If set for summer 2021. Like I said, it's going to be animated. It's going to be short. It's going to have the Avengers, the original Avengers, and primarily like anyone who's featured in this series will have their original actor as the voice. And this will be uh, about kind of hypothetical scenarios of something else that happened differently in one of the movies, how that would have played out in kind of a short form animated format. Scott, I, you know, as kind of the, the new announcement uh, on this, because we didn't really learn anything about WandaVision. Well, actually, I'll return to WandaVision in a minute, but we didn't really learn anything new about Loki or Hawkeye. So what if was this new thing? I think it's really cool and I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, it's an interesting concept for sure. You know, I, I guess I, w- I still want to know a little bit more maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, are these going to be, how, wh- what uh, are the length of these episodes going to be, mm-hmm. um, for example? But the fact that they're getting everyone back on board, I think, uh, you know, that seems like something that's going to uh, draw people in and it, it will it will definitely draw me in at least, you know, to check out what this is for the first couple episodes. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, it, you know, it is probably a low commitment. If I had to just take a guess, it's, these probably are going to be like 15, 20 minute shorts yeah. is kind of what I assume could totally be off on that. We'll see. But the fact that, you you know, you can get someone like Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth. I mean, Chris Hemsworth is a little bit more involved with the franchise still, obviously, uh, but I think that that's really awesome that they can get those people into the again, it's a lower commitment because it's voice acting. It's not a full couple weeks of filming or anything like that. But I just think that's awesome. And I think a lot of people are going to watch it, especially if the quality is uh, what I'm hoping for and expecting. Yeah. And the animation aspect does draw me in just because I have such fond memories of watching, you know, the old Marvel animated series, Spider-Man and X-Men and those sort of things. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. All right, Scott, on the movie side, confirmed for February 2021. Shang-Chi. We learned a little bit of casting news about this. Not really anyone that I'd heard of, except, of course, for Aquafina is going to be in this movie. Scott, is this something that you're excited about purely on the Aquafina news, or is the holistic enterprise getting you excited for Shang-Chi? Yeah, I, I think it is in, in Aquafina, but also Tony Leung, who is, you know, a, a famous martial arts actor and starred in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I believe. Um, he is going to be playing the Mandarin in this, uh, the real Mandarin, of course, not the Ben Kingsley version we saw in Iron Man 3. Uh, but still, the fact that uh, we have this character who we have seen elsewhere in the MCU, I think, is interesting. You know, Obviously, like the Eternals, we don't know a lot about this, but it will be cool to see um, 
sort of a, a no-name actor in the leading role because that's not really something we've seen in the MCU thus far. Yeah, Simu Liu will be playing the titular character, and the full movie title is going to be Shang Chi: The Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, I, you know, I think this is this is going to be something completely new. It's going to be the first, you know, Asian American-led mcu film and couldn't be more excited for this one as well i mean that's going to be a recurring theme couldn't be more excited for pretty much everything on the slate here (laughs) yeah yeah and you know coming up kind of right after that in may 2021 dr strange 2 with a title that i apparently uh am taking a hot take saying it's the worst title in the mcu and that is dr strange in the multiverse of madness we have benedict cumberbatch returning we know that the villain is not going to be Chiwetel Ejiofor's character from the first one. The villain actually seems like it's going to be a villain called Nightmare. Uh, not familiar with that, but there you go, Scott. We have Doctor Strange in in the Multiverse of Madness. Are you excited for this Multiverse of Madness? I th- I am, but the reason that I'm excited is because we are getting Scarlet Witch in this movie, um, who of course is is one of my favorite characters. Or a character that I want to know a lot more about. I I have enjoyed the small bits of her that we have gotten in some of the recent MCU movies. You know, I was really excited for WandaVision. And so I was a little bit disappointed when I saw how long we were going to have to wait for it. But I think this is something that, um, you know, assuages a little bit of that disappointment because I know we're going to get her in this Doctor Strange movie and hopefully we will get her having a more prominent role than she has had in some of the, you know, more recent movies, either whether it's Civil War or um, the recent Avengers movies. So, yeah, I mean, I still have to watch the first Doctor Strange as well. Um, But I have liked what I've seen of this character a lot in Infinity War and Endgame. So I think I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it. I think he probably is better in in, in Infinity War and Endgame, but I still like the first Doctor Strange movie. And I, you know, I alluded to turning back to WandaVision in just a few minutes, a few minutes ago. And that's because what we learned is that not only will Scarlet Witch, like you mentioned, be in this movie, uh, hopefully having that prominent role, like you described, we know that this movie is going to be directly related and directly lead into, I believe WandaVision. So I think this multiverse of madness is going to explain how vision is back alive and how she and now he and Scarlet Witch are somehow in the mid 1900s in their uh, Disney plus TV show, which is what we understand the setting for that is going to be. Yeah, I think it's a great move for Marvel. I'm excited. This was probably my most exciting bit of news from the, the panel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, the last bit of exciting news is something that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Thor four. Uh, we asked the Thor four announcements. Of course, we already knew that Taika Waititi was returning. Of course, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth returning in that title role, but we got a title. You called it Thor love and thunder earlier, and that's what it's going to be. We're going to get Thor love and thunder in November, 2021. Chris Hemsworth is returning. Valkyrie played by Tessa Thompson will be returning and probably the most surprising news of the entire panel, I think has to be that somehow, some way Natalie Portman is going to be returning and she's going to be the first ever female Thor. Yeah. I have no idea how they're going to make this work, but you know, I I'm at a point with Thor where I'm, you know, he is one of my favorite characters and I'm, yeah, that's part of what I think, they've succeeded in doing with this character is yeah, he is one of my favorites now, even though I haven't seen Ragnarok yet. Weird news again about Natalie Portman. I don't know how they're going to work it in, but I'm definitely here for this movie. Uh, it is interesting. I think that we're getting this one before guardians three, because of course we 
did, um, you know, we do think, and it's pretty much confirmed that Thor is going to be in Guardians three. So it will be interesting to see where he where he start. You know, when this movie takes place, where he is when this movie starts off, because he was with the Guardians at the end of Endgame, obviously. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, if this is a companion piece to Guardians 3. Will Guardians 3 be the immediate movie after Thor Love and Thunder? Maybe we'll see. We'll we'll only have to wait and see to find that out. And I think that, you know, all things considered, I would imagine that Marvel would have liked Guardians 3 to be much earlier on in their slate. But of course, they had a few hiccups along the way. Very true. Yeah. So Love and Thunder, I, you know. I, this movie is just going to be batshit crazy. I think if Natalie Portman is going to be a female Thor, I have no idea what they're going to do with it. Cause, and you know, you talk, you kind of alluded to this point, but I'm curious, does the, does the, you know, the status at the end of Endgame with him being, you know, in the as guardians of the galaxy, are we going to be seeing the, the guardians of the galaxy in yeah. Thor love and thunder? I don't know. It's definitely possible. What do you think? If you had to, if you had to, if you had to wager on it right now, will we see the guardians in Thor I, think, I think we could briefly see them at the beginning, just mm-hmm. giving us sort of a transition to yeah. uh, him getting back to Asgard, I presume. Well, Asgard is destroyed. I don't think he's going to be getting back to Asgard. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, wherever the movie is. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Start. Big spoilers for Ragnarok. Asgard doesn't exist anymore. Um, wherever they are, this movie is set. But yeah. I don't think they're going to have a prominent role. I forgot that I forgot again that you haven't seen Ragnarok. Yeah, uh, his home is destroyed. It doesn't exist. That's the whole point of the he doesn't know who he is because he doesn't have a home anymore. Right. I, um, I gathered that. Yeah. 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 No, I think it'll be really interesting to see how this does work into Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Just going back to that point. I wonder if the there I wonder if these movies might happen simultaneously. Like, to your point, I think that's probably a great lead into the movies. You basically see him and the and the Guardians separating and they go their separate ways. And I wonder if. You know, meanwhile, you have Thor, Love and Thunder. You have, you know, Guardians 3 and the search for Gamora is what I imagine that's going to be. Yeah, like the search for Spock. Anyways, that is the lineup for the next two years. We got some confirmed things in development. You know, we're not surprised, but they were still huge hype moments, I imagine, in Hall H over at Comic-Con. Of course, learning that a Fantastic Fantastic Four movie is in production, an X-Men movie is in production, uh, Captain Marvel 2 and Black Panther 2. Also, both in production, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 in production, and I think probably the most out-of-left-field announcement is that there is a Blade movie in production and that Mahershala Ali is going to be playing the titular character, Scott. How perfect is that? Yeah, amazing. I cannot wait to see Mahershala Ali hack up some vampires. I think the biggest question for me is, how is this character going to tie into the rest of the MCU? Because I think he is so different in a lot of aspects um, from most of the other heroes that we see. So that, I mean, that will be interesting to see, but yeah, they could not have cast this role better with Mahershala Ali following in the shoes of Wesley Snipes, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's God tier casting right there. It's great. All right, Scott, that wraps it up for San Diego comic-con news. We're going to bust through some trailers now as we wrap up this episode and no better place to start than some comic-con trailers. And that is top gun maverick surprise trailer surprise tom cruise appearance at comic-con and what we got was uh something else scott what did you think of this trailer yeah um i'm i love this trailer i think that it doesn't give a lot away which i do appreciate um because i think there are some question marks about what the plot is going to be and i say the less we know the better but what we do know and you know all i need to know really is that we have Tom Cruise returning, and we have a great cast alongside him, including John Hamm, Glenn Powell, and Miles Teller. Um, yeah, this is going to be 
a, a great macho spectacle, I'm sure, uh, when it comes out next year. So I'm really excited. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm equally hyped about this movie. Obviously, so cool to get that surprise appearance. If you were there in the Hall H when that happened, and even better to, to then get a surprise trailer for it, a kind of a sizzle reel of sorts, and most of the footage coming from one particular scene uh, with Tom Cruise and a superior officer. But still, the the shots that you get throughout the rest of the film just kind of promise exactly what you'd hope from a Top Gun sequel, and that is, uh, you know, flying action and you know just a lot of really cool moments. Yeah, definitely. All right, Scott, moving on to the next trailer, sticking with Comic-Con. But uh, I mean, I guess technically not Comic-Con because it was a part of Scare Diego, which is the night before Comic-Con starts. And that is we got a new trailer for It Chapter 2. Scott, what did you think of this one? Yeah, I mean, it looks great. We saw a little bit more Pennywise in this one. Um, We got a little bit more look at the uh, kids, you know, at, well, they're not kids anymore. We got a little bit uh, more look at the adult roles. Um, I think I'm just ready to see this movie, honestly, at this point. Um, I think they they did a great job with the first one, and I think the second one uh, has potential, knowing the story as I do, has the potential to uh, hit an even higher note. So, uh, yeah, I guess don't have too much to say about anything specific we saw in the trailer, but uh, I am excited. Yeah, no, this is something that I'm pretty excited for myself, not even as that much of a horror fan. I just love Bill Hader. I know I say this every single time we talk about this, but I'm just so excited to see Bill Hader in more things now that I've seen Barry because Barry is just amazing. That's what I keep hearing. You're going to watch it eventually. I, yeah, I, don't I, know, I don't know when eventually will be. I am. Uh, I, I will. Yeah, yeah, this looks cool. I did hear some fun facts coming out of Scare Diego and that and that it chapter two panel is that something ungodly amount of like fake blood was used in the oh, production boy. of the movie, particularly with Jessica Chastain being the main recipient of that blood. Oh, boy. Yeah. So get hype. <laughs> All right, Scott. Uh, I think we're going to call this the final trailer for the day. And that was one that we didn't get at Comic-Con. It came out the beginning of the week. Kind of surprising to see that that this is the direction that this particular franchise is going. And that is we got a trailer for the Kingsman franchise's prequel called The King's Man. It's got a very different vibe to this trailer. It seems much more dramatic, much more serious. Did you like the direction that this, well, traditionally action franchise might be going with this prequel? Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, I haven't seen the the first two movies, so there's only um, a, you know a certain level that the, I think this is going to hit me. But I do like the vibe uh, of, you know, like you said, a more serious tone. It seems like we're going to have quite a colorful cast of villains in this movie. You know, Ray Fiennes, of course, always someone that brings a lot of gravitas. Uh, so I think they're they're going in the right direction with this. Um, but again, I, I really need to watch those first two movies to determine just, I guess, how I feel about this franchise in general. But I think this is going to be more kind of a prequel. Uh, am I wrong about that? No, yeah, no, it is a prequel. Yeah, it's okay. a prequel movie set, I think, many years before yeah. either of the first two movies. And, you know, I'm on board with you. I haven't seen either one of the first two movies. I definitely plan on seeing them soon, certainly before this movie comes out. But what surprised me most is, is that I love it when franchises like this, you know, just try to just go for a slightly different vibe while, you know, adding on to the to the universe itself. And I'm really excited about this all of a sudden. And I didn't necessarily expect to be excited about a Kingsman movie. Yeah, no, I mean, you you do want to see that in a franchise, right? You you know, you don't want to see them doing the third thing, the, the same thing the third time around. Uh, so, yeah, this is, you know, it seems like a, a bolder step than a lot of franchises are willing to make. But I appreciate their ambition in going for it. 
All right, Scott, that should just about do it for today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Any parting thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Uh, the Cleveland Indians are three games out of first place. That's all I have to say. Can't wait for them to sink and disappoint you. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sure they will, but I'm going to enjoy it for now. <laughs> there you go. I'll let them live. They say let them live. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarby Dent. And I can be found at at Shelton2013 over there, where you can also find our podcast at at Media Plug Pods. Our podcast also has a Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where we'd love it if you could check us out over there. There's a bunch of different reward tiers, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd really appreciate it if you did help us out over there, make this a more financially feasible endeavor for us as much as it is a passion project. We'd also like it to be uh, financially stable. So help us out over there if you can. But if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Next week, we'll be back with Quentin Tarantino's ninth and allegedly penultimate original film. We'll see about that. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Until then, however, that'll be all for us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free. One more time. Oh, no, I think we did I think we got this one. Yeah, we're just getting in the groove. Now let's leave them wanting more. Yeah, you've grown 400 pounds since we started. Meanwhile, I look exactly the same. no worry. You tell them to stop. You insisted we sing this. I insisted you started singing it. It's our signature song. We shouldn't be sharing it. But it's our signature song, so we have to. Look, just tell them to stop. It means no worry. Oh, now he's ripping, Kuma. This is a nice...